in the commandments that you gave, even your people of old, all the way back from the Exodus, their deliverance from slavery in Egypt as a picture of their one day deliverance and their Messiah, Jesus Christ, from the slavery of sin was commemorated each time the Passover was celebrated among your people. And when you came and instituted by your own blood and broken body, the very elements which were represented in that meal, in that feast, and commissioned then our communion table, which we will celebrate tomorrow, we continue, Lord, to remember and proclaim. And now, Lord Jesus, as history marches on according to the predestined plan of the Godhead, we extol you in your great name because you have redeemed us. This day we gather because you rose from the dead. This day we praise because you conquered our sin. This day we rejoice because you ascended before the Father. This day we celebrate and we learn because you proclaimed your kingdom. This day we rejoice and we have full assurance of your sovereignty in the future that this whole world and all of history is moving towards because you ever live making intercession for us and you ever reign at the right hand of the Father. And this is why we are here. And so now as we turn toward your holy word, I pray that you would open our hearts to love and to appreciate these incalculable riches, the gold and silver, Lord Jesus, beyond any earthly standards of purity, of knowledge and truth, of salvation's very description. I pray that they would be written upon our souls. I pray that you would stretch our minds, Lord Jesus, to comprehend the glories of your re revelation and that you would equip us and sharpen our speech and thoughts that we might be able to more accurately and consistently proclaim the knowledge of your rule, your reign, and your great salvation. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a privilege to open up the Holy Scriptures today, to read them and to apply them, and to realize their eternal relevance and significance. Let's do so this morning by turning to Romans chapter 1. This morning will be a brief break from our series in Jonah. And it will be a standalone message to commemorate God's providence in history as we remember His preservation of His gospel and His church. Even as we recall 500 years ago, a spark, a beginning, a milestone of the Reformation. So turn with me to Romans 1, 16-17, and let us behold a few words of the Lord that had the power to shape and restructure the church and history to the glory of His great name. The title of this morning's message is Reformation via Gospel. And the aim of today's message is to remind us that a single Bible verse has more history-shaping power than all the schemes of man. The aim of this morning's message is to remind us that a single scripture, a single Bible verse, has more history-changing, history-shaping power than all the schemes of man. Do you believe that? Let us live like we believe that. Let us live. We know that this is true in the core of our spiritual being. If we live this way consistently, 
we just may see another reformation which I submit to you is needed this day. Would you stand with me out of reverence for the Word of God and let us set our attention on Romans 1, 16 and 17 this day which will be our primary text. The Word of God reads, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God revealed. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of God. You may be seated. We are two days shy of a 500-year anniversary. Two days shy of 500 years ago, an unassuming document to the average passing eye was tacked to the door of a castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, alongside many other documents, by the way, no doubt, as this was common practice of the day. This was done by one oblivious would-be reformer, Martin Luther, you've heard his name. These 95 theses, which were statements of fact that he wanted to argue as against standard practice of the day, were points of contention, disagreements that Martin Luther had with the church. This Augustinian monk, Luther, he had a bone to pick with the current operating religious practice of the day, especially relating to something that was very common called indulgences. Indulgences were the church selling the ability to guarantee certain things in the afterlife related to salvation of lost souls. Indulgences, indulgences presumed that a monetary sum, that a few dollars, in exchange for the power of the church, could affect the state of the dead even after they had left this mortal coil and gone on to the reckoning and the afterlife. Why was Luther questioning this practice? Historians could cite any number of superficial reasons. There likely were many reasons why Luther was questioning this practice. I mean, you could come up with just reasons based in logic, reasons based in effect, reasons based on history, uh, reasons based in preference, any number of reasons. But the most likely substantial reason for why Luther questioned this practice finds its source in a scripture from the Word of God, and we read it this morning. For in it, that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. These words had a profound effect on Luther at this time. By extension, these gospel truths turned the world upside down in short order in 1517 and beyond, igniting a wildfire of controversy, repentance, restructuring of church and, and culture. Some of these effects reverberate through the centuries, even to us, our culture, even this church, a half of a millennium removed from that historic moment. In the Reformation, God has given us 
providential evidence in post-canonical, that is, after the Bible has been written history. God has given us providential evidence in the history that has followed the apostolic age and the writing of the scriptures of the unfathomable power of His Word. Again, this message is to remind us that a single Bible verse has more history-shaping power than all the schemes of man. In the Reformation, God showed this power in powerful ways, not because of Martin Luther, not because of John Calvin, Owen, Zwingli, Knox, all of the others that followed in their stead, the historical lineage of those who looked to some of these breakthroughs in theology. None of these were the ultimate reason, but instead because the Word of God was foundational and front and center because of this. That is, the true gospel appreciated and proclaimed, kings were dethroned, institutions reformed, mountains moved, societies flourished, worldviews were transformed, souls were saved, and many other earth-shattering effects. This was the legacy of the Reformation because it was a call to the Word of God. The conflict sparked in Luther's day hinged on authority, the authority to to define terms. If Scripture alone, or in the Latin, the sola, was sola scriptura, if Scripture alone, what was called the formal principle, that is the foundation of the Reformation, if Scripture alone is indeed the infallible rule of faith and practice, then Luther's question was, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And if the Scriptures are the ultimate authority, where would you turn to answer that question? Well, you would turn to the Scriptures. You would turn to Romans 1, 16 and 17, for example, and hear that Paul, an initial apostle, proclaimed, first of all, granted the revelation of the knowledge of Christ, and given the duty to proclaim the gospel, declared that he was not ashamed of this reality of God's revelation in time that Jesus died to save sinners because it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. It's the power to change nations, to reform institutions, to change cultures, to redeem even you and me from the tragic death of sin and from our nature inherited by Adam and for the transgressions that we are guilty of against a holy God. The Scriptures answer the question, what is the gospel? Romans 1, 16 through 17, let us consider this morning according to Romans and not Rome. You see, the church in Luther's day presumed that they had authority as solid, as sound, as powerful as Scripture. The church had come to see that the magisterium, that is, the leaders of the church, the tradition, the things that the church had practiced, and the scripture itself all carried equal weight. The voice of one was as good as the voice of the other two. If the pope said it under certain certain conditions, you could take it as gospel. If it was the long-term practice of the church as affirmed by the current practice of the day, you could take it as gospel. 
But this led to great corruption. Things like indulgences, virtually selling the promise of salvation for filthy gold and silver. So Luther turned to where he knew was the only rule of faith and practice, and he asked the question, what is the gospel? Not according to Rome, the Roman church that is, not according to any experts that speak as if they were the oracle of God, but according to the word of God itself. What does Romans 1, 16 and 17 mean according to Romans? Unfortunately, it was a novel question for the day. Under that heading, let us consider three points. Condition, candidates, and catalyst. Condition. We need to be saved from what? From what do we need to be saved? What is our condition? Secondly, candidates. Salvation is for whom? Who are the candidates for salvation? And thirdly, catalyst. That is the active ingredient, the active element. Salvation is realized in the heart of an individual by means of what? Romans 16, 1, 16-17 in its surrounding context answers all three questions. This was revolutionary for Luther. I'll read you a quote from Luther himself with respect to this scripture, Romans 1, 17. This is taken from his works, volume 34. Luther says, I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul and the epistles to the Romans. But up till then, it was not the cold blood about the heart, but a single word in chapter 117. Quote, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, quote, that had stood in my way. For I hated that word, righteousness of God which according to the use and custom of all the teachers I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or act of righteousness, as they called it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. You see what Luther is saying? I could not believe that God's holiness was satisfied by my works. My divorcing myself from the nice things of life, uh, going and living on just meager provisions, just a little bit of food and water, and leaving beside the fancy clothes and the creature comforts and the joys of marriage and taking on this life of holiness engineered to get me closer to God. That was the way that Martin Luther was living, yet he still knew that he was a sinner, and his conscience plagued him all the more. He goes on, I did not love, yes, I hated the righteousness of God who punishes sinners, and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity, by the law of the Decalogue, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. 
What was the gospel according to Romans? For Luther, he felt damned, condemned. And for him, there was no escape, least of all his works. He was crying out for salvation. He knew if no one else was a candidate, he certainly was. He was starting to get it. Condition. Our condition, salvation from what? First of all, in our text today, it is clear that salvation is from the wrath of God. We read this in chapter 1, verse 18. Following our verses today, speaking of the gospel, as the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The very next verse in Romans 1.18 reads as follows. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to, him, to them. This was the weight of the reality that Paul impressed upon his readers, that there is hell to pay, as it were. There is such a thing as just retribution for crimes, for sins against the holy God. Every sinner, unless he is saved, must face the wrath of God, and he will not do well when that confrontation comes on the final day. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 of Romans. Again, Romans, the gospel according to Romans. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. It is righteous that God would judge the sinner. Verse 2 or verse 3, do, not, do you not suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgments of God? No. Paul's words are none. It's clear none will escape the judgment of God if left to their own devices. Verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Stealing away, trying to earn your own salvation by denying yourself certain comforts and embracing certain hardships in life is doing nothing, in Paul's words, except for storing up wrath for the day of wrath. And it is from this condition we need salvation. We also need another reformation, let me submit to you. During Luther's day, the problem wasn't so much that people didn't grasp the concept of the consequences of sin. The reality of the wrath of God was placed before them on a regular basis. They were in fact missing the true hope of salvation under those conditions. But they labored and despaired under that crushing burden and weight. That sin has eternal, dire, hellish consequences, so much so that they were willing to go broke, go into bankruptcy, to try to pay their way out of what was to come. These days, we have, it's as if the pendulum swing has gone to the other side. And I 
recorded a quote for you to illustrate this. Today, the concept of the wrath of God is so unpopular, you almost can't overstate that fact. It has become politically uh, uh, incorrect to even, uh, uh, to even consider such a thing. And this in professing churches, this is the case in professing churches as well. Recently, I read a short interview with the lady pastor of the second largest PCUSA, so Presbyterian Church uh, USA in America. She was interviewed by the press and she was asked if she has any doubts about her faith and she answers, quote, of course I doubt. Look at what just unfolded in in our world in Las Vegas. You remember the mass shooting just weeks ago where 50 some were mowed down to their death by a lone, deranged gunman committing that horrible, murderous sin, 500 more injured. She looks to this and says, of course I doubt. That terror and that lack of care for humanity is overwhelming, and God has some explaining to do. Oh, really? God has some explaining to do? If she would read the book of Romans, she would know One day, she would stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and if she does not realize the blood of Jesus Christ washing away her sins, she will have some explaining to do. That is the truth. Far be it from anyone to presume to question God Almighty when sin is rampant in our own hearts and saturating this wicked culture We have explaining to do. We have explaining to do as an American society, woefully ignorant, and in many cases, absolutely blatantly rebellious against the truth of God's only way of salvation. Later in that interview, she was asked, if Jesus was the only way to salvation, quote, this apostate says, no, God's not a Christian. I mean, we are. For me, the Christian tradition is the way to understand God and my relationship with the world and other humans. But I'm not about to say what God can and cannot do in other ways and with other spiritual experiences. Blah, 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 blah. Garbage. Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. And Luther realized, because the scriptures say, the very first thing that we're confronted with when we awaken to reality is our own sin and the fact that we deserve the wrath of God. We are red-handed sinners, Romans goes on to describe. In verse 20 of chapter 1, the invisible attributes, namely the internal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, Paul, Paul says, ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, namely sinners, are without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The scriptures go on to say in this very passage, all of the unnatural, all of the horrible and perverse things, actions that begin to color the decisions, the behavior, the worldview, the consciousness, and the uh, entire Experience of mankind, verse 29. 
filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boasters, inventors of evil, disobedient to parent, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those that practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The condition of man is that he is a red-handed sinner. That term red-handed means you're caught with no excuse. You're not caught uh, blindly doing something you thought was right, but I can excuse it this time. But now that you know, you know, make sure not to do it. No, creation itself testifies to the reality of a creator. And before him, we all know intrinsically deep in our souls we must answer. And so the transgression of his holy law weighs upon the conscience every one of us is responsible for. And the more knowledge we have of this, it only increases our guilt. This is the condition. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God that we deserve on account of fitting right into this list in Romans chapter 1. Saved from the reality that God's holiness and glory is preserved and that he will judge a rebel, and the rebel will get what he deserves unless atonement is provided. Saved from the wrath of God, when the knowledge of these things is brought to our attention, it only increases our guilt. Chapter 3, verse 19, again, Romans according to Romans. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, and that the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, Luther thought that through the law came his salvation. And by keeping it, that hopefully he could attain, achieve some aspect of reconciliation, favor with the Lord. And this is why he despaired. Because in the honest moments of his soul's internal searching, he knew that everything that he did was colored by the wicked motives of sin. He was a sinner that needed salvation outside himself, an alien or an other righteousness. If he was to be judged by his own righteousness, he knew he had hell to pay and there was no escape. The day the light switch turned on for Luther was when he realized that he would one day be judged by the righteousness of another, the righteousness of his Savior. Secondly, who are the candidates for salvation? Salvation for whom? Well, the scriptures declare that with the gospel going forth in this first generation, the apostolic age after Christ had come, Paul declares that this is a gospel for everyone. He says again in our text today, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Candidates for salvation, everyone who believes. He qualifies this further by saying, verse 16, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. If we turn over a couple pages again and look at other passages, we see in 2.25 the following. Paul goes on to describe this concept in a little more detail. He says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, 
So he's describing certain terms that set apart the Jew. These were the non-Gentiles, if you were. Paul uses Greek and Gentile interchangeably. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So what is he saying? That Jews need salvation if they fall short of God's law, just as the Gentiles do. Verse 26, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who has the written code and the circumcision but breaks the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. He goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 1, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? He says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul is drawing a distinction between redemptive history, the history of salvation, and the heart of the individual. And you see, the Jew at this time tended to conflate the two, tended to get them mixed up. The Jew thought, I am in a good place, I am secure because I am associated with the history of God's revelation. I belong to a people who have received the word of God. I belong to a people whom God led because we were his his, his own and his uh, special uh, called out ones from, uh, deli- uh, from slavery in Egypt into the promised land. I feel good about myself because I have this external association with these types of things. Paul says, don't mix up the history of God's work with the matter of the heart. He says, no one is a Jew who is one merely outwardly. And nor is circumcision outward and physical. Those things were a type. They represented something substantive, something much deeper, something foundational. But a Jew, he says, 2.29, is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You can impress people by your outward affiliations and associations. I attend church. I grew up in a Christian home. I read the Bible regularly. I have respect for Christianity and its culture. I realize that um, these are treasured institutions that it would be good for us to hang on to and even find some sense of identity with. Any idea like this of external uh, relationship to the things of the Lord is insufficient. Salvation is for whom it's for everyone and there is no salvation in outward association. Salvation is for everyone who realizes their heart problem and for everyone who truly believes and internally realizes that he himself is a sinner and in need of what only Jesus Christ can supply. In Luther's day, association with the traditions of the church was really sold as the assurance of salvation. If you're in good standing with the church, you're in good standing with God. And by certain traditional measures, you know, you would have your priest in confession sign off on the authenticity of your repentant, your penitent heart. You would have, you would be able to sign off and check off the list of boxes if you 
embraced all the sacraments, which were the means to communicate grace. So you could get some grace by penance. You can get some grace by um, the uh, priests and so on performing these rituals and the uh, Lord, uh, the uh, Eucharistic meal, transubstantiation, all these ideas which we don't need to go into at length here. The, but the main idea to take away is that the people were trusting and the church was proclaiming that association with the traditions of the external was the basis for their assurance. But this was not true. Luther began to see it because Paul had already said it in the book of Romans. These things offered no assurance. No more assurance than an association with Jewish ceremony and culture at the time when he wrote the book of Romans. All need salvation, both Jew and Gentile, both Catholic and non-Catholic, or, or whatever the categories that man invents to distinguish himself and to give himself a sense of assurance and hope. Paul goes on declaring that Jew and Gentile alike are in the same boat. Chapter 3, verse 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. And in Luther's time or our time, you could, just, you could substitute just about any other scheme of man in there. What, are, what then? Are we Catholics any better off? We embrace this sacramental system? No, not at all. Where we have already charged, oh, let's throw another one in. Are we Americans any better off? Is there salvation to be found by the means at our disposal in this great nation? Are we any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. This is everyone, as it is written. Now Paul begins to quote, Scriptures prior, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their tongues, lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He goes on, verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And Luther began to understand in that first quote the intensity of this truth. That by the law he would not be saved. Instead, the more he understood the law, in light of his own actions and behavior, the more he came to the knowledge of his sin. Paul was not ashamed of this truth, that this gospel was for everyone. He says in 1.14, well, backing up to 12, or 13, I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. The true gospel removes 
all grounds for pride, all grounds for privilege. Paul himself, he said, I have so much to boast in in another place in Philippians. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm learned beyond my peers. I studied under the great Gamaliel. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, according to the law, grading on a curve between other human beings, relatively blameless. Was there any hope in this? Paul knew that there was none. He said that he had counted all these things, refuse, loss, dung, that he may gain Jesus Christ. Paul also says to the Corinthians, I have determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul is preaching the gospel to barbarians, people who have little literacy among them, who aren't sophisticated in their understanding, they're not cultured, they haven't arrived, they don't know the philosophy of the Epicureans and the Stoics, they couldn't hold a conversation at the Areopagus and Mars Hill, But Paul is not ashamed to go to a backward people who have little to show for their intellect or IQ and to share with them the message of hope because he knows that the ground is equal before the cross. And a learned Pharisee grades no higher in the kingdom of God than a groveling pauper because they are both in sin. They are both sons of Adam. In fact, the one has just racked up wrath for himself, debt for himself, more wrath on the day of wrath, and the other might be more likely to see his great need. Being poor in physical means might lead him to be more, if God is pleased to use it, poor in spirit. And so this is why Paul understood that there is no, no one who is privileged and no one who should have pride. There is no Catholic supremacy at the time of Luther, where those who are in the church deserved to see themselves on a higher plane than others because of what they had worked or accomplished, nor was the Jew who was faithful to the ceremonial law at the time of Paul's preaching to think that they had a leg up on their pagan neighbors, nor were the pagans themselves to think that they had secured a hope because they worshipped Artemis, Diana, or any of the other myriads of gods in the pagan pantheon. And in case we think that we could be guilty of the same, look at Jonah. We've been studying Jonah's attitude lately, and he despised the fact that he had to go to these backward, pagan, idol-worshiping, terrorist Ninevites and bring the gospel. Jonah really needed a dose of Romans after God spared the city. Jonah needed to hear that this gospel was for Greek and for barbarian, for wise and for foolish. Do not be ashamed of that fact. Because you are equally depraved with your fellow man except for the grace of God. Last point this morning. In closing, let us consider the catalyst. Romans 1, 16 and 17, according to Romans, what is it that saves us? Salvation realized by means of what? Paul says in verse 17, For in it, that is, in true salvation, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I mentioned to you what is considered by church historians the formal principle of the Reformation. Scripture alone is the ultimate authority. There was another principle of the Reformation. It's called the material principle. And that was salvation by grace alone. And as we look in these verses, we see 
where and the surrounding context, we see where this notion comes from. First of all, we see it in righteousness expounded. Paul says, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now, there are two aspects of righteousness that we get through the proclamation of God's truth. One comes by way of the law, and it teaches us God's holy dictates of, whom we, uh, uh, of which we all fall short. But there is another aspect of righteousness that comes by way of the gospel, and that is the gospel itself, the fact that God counts the righteousness of Christ to our account. This is what Luther was missing. This is what the church was missing at the time of the Reformation. And this is why this verse, Romans 1.17, the realization that the righteousness promised in the gospel isn't just the standard held up against us that shows us to fall immeasurably short and unable to achieve, but is actually the imputed or granted righteousness of Christ to us whereby we are judged holy in the sight of God. This is why this single verse had such amazing power, more history-shaping power than all the schemes of man to earn their own salvation. In the rest of Romans, Paul, basically these two verses that we're studying today, they are the thesis statement, they're the basic proclamation of Romans, and the rest of the book goes on to defend them. We're just touching on a few examples of this today. In Romans 3.21, we read these words last week, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law of the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Do you see? The righteousness of God moves from an indictment of our guilt to now something that is granted to us in salvation. Paul says, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So there's an aspect of righteousness that we own, that we receive in the gospel. This is something the law and the prophets bore witness to in the past. But now this righteousness is realized. It is ours in Christ, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. Praise the Lord. In Romans 5, Paul explains that all who are in Adam shared in Adam's experience so that through one man's trespass, many died through one man's trespass, uh, that namely Adam. And then Paul contrasts that. He says, but much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, and it has abounded for many. From verse 15. Verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. This righteousness of God comes by way of free gift. It is grace. It is given to us. It is granted to us. It is not earned. It is not something we achieve. It is something that we receive by faith. If because of one man's trespass, verse 17, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This righteousness of Christ is the catalyst for salvation. Salvation is realized by means of this very thing. This comes by way of faith. 
We can't go into it at length today, but Abraham is used as an example in chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, here we have the material principle of the Reformation right out of Scripture. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into His grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Later in the same uh, chapter, we uh, continue verse 17. It says, as we have just read, that because of one man's trespass, death reigned, but through that free gift of righteousness, uh, something entirely different is now our experience. If we go back in verses 8 through 11, we see that but God, it says, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. So that's a restatement again of chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Christ died for us. We have been justified by His blood. We will be saved by Him from the wrath of God. We were sinners. goes on, it says, For if, we, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In the one case, 5.1, it says we have been justified by faith. It goes on to qualify in verse 9, we have been justified by His blood. Justification by faith is just shorthand. It's a summary way of saying that Jesus Christ's blood His payment for our sin is the catalyst for our salvation. It granted to us His righteousness. Faith in that, and even that faith is that gift, that free gift of the the Lord. These are the things, the means by which salvation is realized in the heart of the believer. This is the gospel. When these things began to dawn on Luther, again, I only use his example to illustrate God's providence. It is not that one man had power to transform history. Again, it's that one verse had power to transform history. And in God's providence, he just happened to use the actions of one uh, man, in this case, to spark something that then continued. Luther quotes, Luther uh, continues to recount his experience with this passage, Romans 1.17, again from his works. He says, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, quote, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live, quote. Therefore, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning, the righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. 
Thereupon I ran through the scriptures from memory. I also found in other terms an analogy. As the work of God, that is what God does in us, the power of God with which he makes us strong, the wisdom of God with which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. One verse had the power to raise this man from spiritual death. One verse had the power to shape history for 500 years. It is the word of God and the word of God only that is the key to our problems that holds the answer to our great need of salvation. And let us, brothers and sisters, in light of the history of the God's Word recorded in Scripture and its effects recorded in His providence throughout time, let us return to this gospel. And may it spark in us and in our land, if it brings glory to Him, a new reformation. To this gospel we return to the health of our souls to the vitality of our church, the church of Jesus Christ, His body, His bride, washed and redeemed by His precious blood alone. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank You that the seed of Your Word, like all seeds, at first glance, seems unassuming. We thank you within that unassuming small package contains the potential and the power to bloom and to produce fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. Restore our faith in the power of your scriptures. Lord, may we be faithful to look to you and you alone as our only hope of salvation to never grow tired of hearing the gospel proclaimed and realizing with hearts burning afresh with thanksgiving its power to redeem us, undeserving sinners, to redeem me, a hopelessly lost, hell-bent transgressor. God, I pray that you would also restore our faith in the power of a single verse from your holy word to transform our nation, our world, and history. We know that your word never returns void. It accomplishes everything you commission it to do. We thank you that we ourselves, the born again in this room, are living proof of that promise. We pray, Lord, that others would join us soon as we proclaim what has happened to us. By the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, may you be pleased to use your church as your ambassador to proclaim the gospel to a generation who once again is dying with this, in this famine for hearing the word of the Lord. If there are any in the hearing of this message today who have not bowed before Jesus Christ as their righteousness, who have not placed their faith in Him alone for their salvation, draw them through the proclamation of your word to salvation in Christ alone, that they may join the fellowship of those whose hearts have been transformed and meet each Lord's Day to give you praise and worship because of what you have done for us. We thank you for this day. We thank you that you are so long-suffering and that you are so faithful to your word and that you have preserved your church all these centuries. May we, Lord Jesus, be found faithful serving you when we are called home 
or when you return. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.